0: Just stop it. The -the run-of-the-mill cheesy humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with arrows in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Joto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has dedicated her entire life to disrupting the status quo. She is considered a challenge junkie. I cannot wait to find out about this. (laughs) Early in her career, she beat out 240 men in an American software company to become the number one saleswoman in that enterprise. In the early 90s, venture capitalists simply did not fund women in technology. So she took that challenge and she went on to fund a startup that grew from $23 million in revenues to $400 million in less than five years. But we're talking to her today because she is especially passionate about helping CEOs understand and value the role human capital plays in innovation in our ever-increasing cyber artificial intelligence world. She's a mastermind behind an integrated artificial intelligence and machine learning platform as a service to simplify the art and science of decision-making. I cannot wait. (laughs) Coming to us live from Durham, North Carolina, please welcome our Disruptor CEO at Plaza Bridge Group, Teresa Spangler.
1: Thank you, Carly Jarrett. It's very nice to be here. Uh, Thank you for inviting me and having me today.
0: You are so welcome. Well, I learned that you were a challenge junkie, and I was like, that's it. I'm talking to this woman.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because it feeds me, and it probably does you too. I think a lot of us love, I especially love, Give me something that's messy and let me turn it into art. It just feeds me. And because I think sometimes we think we can't do it. It's not possible. And I love the fact that everything's possible. Anything 100% is possible, 100% of the time. So how do we make that happen? That's I
0: love that. There's always a solution. You just need to go out and find it.
1: Yes. Somewhere. It doesn't somewhere cost money. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: So tell me, based on that, what is your main fundamental ingredient for disruptive innovation?
1: People are the center for me. And it's doing something for humanity in innovation. So much innovation has so much opportunity to help people. And so I look for that innovation and disruption for good, where we can improve healthcare, where we can improve equality, where we can... You know, these these technologies all have that ability. And if I can help CEOs and founders find that secret ingredient for this raw technology that they haven't quite figured out what the product might be for that, that to me is my just drive. That's my secret, I think, power, if you will. So
0: underneath it all is people.
1: It is to me. The environment's really big, but it still comes back to people, right? If we're not yeah. serving the environment and in protecting the environment, we're hurting people. If we can't grow food, we're hurting people.
0: That's true. Why do we have all this technology? It's to
1: help people. It is.
0: Well, let's talk about the status quo for this because you use artificial intelligence and machine learning to help people and to spur innovation and to help with the decision-making. Right. Let's talk about the status quo of decision-making
1: <laughs> in corporate um, America or small businesses. This discussion, I have this discussion, I think, every day. I'll put it in these terms. Some of the challenge with decision-making is sometimes there's not necessarily a published process by which maybe it's the CEO or the board of directors. They haven't built a framework around how to build a good decision-making process in the organization. So the alignment between what the C-suite feels like needs to happen and the board of directors versus what actions people on their teams are taking and how they come up to that C-suite to get approval or decisions on actions they think are really important is a huge gap. And so the ability to be able to close that gap using a framework, leveraging non-partial information and data, but then also putting an external factor of data, things that would influence that decision from the outside. And then there's an element of intuition that we don't want to lose that. Bringing all of those elements around is really what our game day decision, that was the whole purpose behind game day, is bring it and make it easier for alignment on these ideas and prioritization on how the funding needs to be spent on these decisions.
0: So basically, there's a misalignment from the board to the C-suite to the rest of the company or middle management. I'm not
1: even sure if it's a misalignment as much as it's a gap in information, which is sort of alignment, but we need our team to do this. You know, I need my people to be able to take more ownership or accountability. And then you have a lot of the team department heads are saying, I can't get a decision made. I can't move. And so the sort of stuckness happens.
0: They can't get a decision made, they can't move because they can't get things approved or they don't know how to get things approved.
1: Well, they feel like they can't get things approved, but in reality that formal process, for what's the C-suite looking for? What do we really need to justify that decision? Some of those elements a lot of times are just missing. And so you're putting information forward, but you're not giving me the carrot that I need to know that for example, let to say I want to get something approved and it's an idea or a new product that I would love to put some money into to go and get some resource behind. Well, what's the justification? And sometimes we might have some kind of market justification, but what we haven't done is analyze it all the way through to say, you know, the market looks like it would do this and the opportunity looks like this. But what we didn't do is the risk assessment. What happens if? What's my backtrack? What's my pivot? What's the next stage? How might I iterate this idea? So I'm not taking 2.5 million right up front. I'm taking 250,000 and building this framework to test these ideas. So sometimes there's that gap. And if we step it out and we put a little more detail behind it and we show the risk factor, is it a one, two, or three? How does my company evaluate risk? Are we disruptors or are we iterative kind of innovators. And we need to know those things. And I think sometimes that's just built into the culture or it's missing in the culture. So that information is a gap in my mind a lot of times.
0: It sounds like what's missing, and forgive me if I'm just dumbing this down, but I listen to this and what you say and try to have my own cognitions and epiphanies about it, especially for our listeners. But you're talking about a gap in critical thinking. Yes. Okay.
1: I wish I'd said that.
0: <laughs> well, that's my job in life, right? To be able to communicate it to the masses,
1: right?
0: So there's a gap in critical thinking. And yeah. what is this costing organizations? And what is it costing oh, in you. terms of effort as far as like how much of the organization is spent turning their wheels on this or so lost I, revenues?
1: I love that question because so many of the environments that I go into, and I can give an example, a real world example they have an innovation office and that office has given budget and they've worked with other consultants, they've worked with contractors. And they, when I come in, the story I always get told is, well, we've spent that money before. It just doesn't go anywhere. It goes flat. It goes flat. And then that money is wasted because they can't get the product out the door or they don't have the feature set rich enough and they don't know how those features should be developed. So you take that example Well, when I come in, I do what I feel like I'm best at. And that's that alignment that you're mentioning. Let's make sure we understand what's not working in this. Most of the time, it's that you haven't built enough understanding, especially if you need your organization around what the purpose of that innovation might be. And sometimes in this particular case, if we're going to monetize data, we're going to use that artificial intelligence to build an artificial conversational application. That conversational application to some of the people inside the company that actually do that role feel threatened. So it doesn't have potentially the chance and support you need to get that technology out the door, even spend money on developing it. So it becomes an effort of, go back to people, How do you engage the people so that they don't feel threatened by the new technology in their own companies and they want to help drive this through? And for them, they need the story. What's the story this technology is going to do? How will it empower more people? We're not taking your jobs. We're actually wanting to put the technology in the hands of more people. So it's that kind of support when you're trying to build something disruptive. It's that story that you have to build to the executive team and all the way through the organization because you're going to need them for the most part.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, it sounds like a PR campaign internally. I know working with disruptors, they have that externally because they have a huge education gap as to why this disruption is needed and what is the purpose behind it.
1: That's correct. I was just going to say there's the other side of that where sometimes, and this isn't a bad thing, the CEO may say, I don't want to disrupt my day to day this is going to be a net new disruptive product, go work with a small small team and let's figure out how we get this out the door most effectively. Those are sometimes cleaner because it's almost like an entrepreneurial venture yeah. studio inside the company. Yeah,
0: and I would imagine it would be cleaner and easier. Yes, but yeah. What's the percentage of that going um, on? You
1: know, it's that's less. I would say it's probably been 25% versus the other is you got to have the resources internal to the organization supporting the effort to get it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So do we have any figures? It's like how much money is wasted or lost or, uh,
1: you know, or do you just have
0: examples? Like, well, you know, I, mean, you know, I remember we were we're talking can... to a company not too long ago and they had spent 350000 on a particular new technology uh, this... product for innovation. And you know what? They hadn't used it or done anything with it for oh, over no. a year. It...
1: I don't. I wish I had those numbers in front of me. There are numbers that show, but the numbers are in the millions. And it's going to depend on the size of the company. Like There is a Fortune 20 company that we've worked with and talked to. We didn't do an engagement. We talked to the innovation officer. In that case, he had spent himself, I want to say 25 million on various, because it's a huge organization, on various innovations in the company and and maybe had one success that they could actually tout out of the 25. So that's millions of dollars. And there's all kinds of reasons, right? There's the support, didn't get the organizational support. They might've had a start, but then they didn't do the market intelligence to understand where this product might fit. So it stalls and it's not returning fast enough. I have an article that is the paradox of innovating for good. And in that article, it does have some of those stats in there that the barriers are so sometimes so strong that you didn't do the government compliance uh, detail. You don't have them in your bank early on, and so it gets stalled when it has to get to some kind of compliant or regulatory approval stage. And so by not engaging people early on, you risk that stall or even the stop of a technology but it's it's millions. If it's a big company, it's millions.
0: Yes, makes sense. So we have politics, we have market intelligence, we have government or regulatory Mm -hmm. compliance. Is there a set number of items that have to be considered in this critical thinking thought process?
1: There are multiple innovation processes. Stage gate is one. Design thinking is somewhat an iterative sort of innovation model. But in all of them, it's pick the one that works for your company, that a framework, whether you want to call it or use StageGate and iterate on that model in the ones that we've been in. In some cases, they don't have a framework and we'll help them put something in that works for their culture and their company. In other cases, they may have, for example, be using StageGate and we'll build an iterative process that fills in some gaps, even that we think StageGate, those different stages that you have to take your from idea to market out in that commercialization so we'll look and sometimes build in other just simple processes that make it easier for the company to digest the innovation getting it out the door you know i evaluate what those barriers are before we even try to develop out and and again i go back to the example what's the competency of the organization in AI, what's their competency with data? If they're a traditional company, they may they may have a lot of data scientists, but they're not technology savvy. So how can we help them? They have to gain some expertise before they can get this technology out the door and try to support it. So how do mm-hmm. we help that and give them the chance? If they want to be disruptive and they choose to do so, then how do we give them some of the experience and education and mentorship that they need? be able to support that once we've got it in a customer's hands. Those are critical parts. So sometimes they don't go thought all the way through. Do they even know what disruption is? Many times not, especially for their own organization. The simple question of how might we monetize our data? Do we even have any data that could be monetized? That's a great question. How do I monetize it? It goes all the way back to they're not thinking necessarily disruption, but they think they want to have this great new thing that's going to change the market. That's another way to say disruptive. So, I mean, it may come out in different ways. We do, you know, I've done a lot of educational sessions on what is disruption and you don't have to just disrupt. You can have lots of different forms of innovation that really put your company to a competitive advantage, which right now didn't in COVID. And we're in a whole nother sort of era of the economic challenge. We need to be looking at those challenges face on with what's it going to take for my company to continue this growth. Most likely, there's going to be something new that you're going to need to do. That and if you know do it, your customers are already making that those changes. How yeah. are your customers looking at all of that?
0: Well, I find disruption has become a serious buzzword. And people don't always know that disruptive yeah. innovation means that You have created a product typically or a service typically through technology that has handled a pent up demand from a very key target audience that makes things more accessible, more transparent, more available to them. It really changes a whole value network. It changes a whole economic network. It cuts out the middleman. I don't think all innovation needs to be disruptive, but we do have a lot of disruptive technology today.
1: That is absolutely the truth. I agree. It doesn't have to be disruptive. I mean, I teach an innovation management course at a university and we do projects. So we're working with a venture-backed healthcare AI company. And they're innovating process. They're innovating a different way to do something. They are leveraging AI, but that in itself is not necessarily a disruptive thing. So it's business model innovation is what they've done to sort of change the game of how they can support the healthcare industry. And so it it can be different. It can be business model. It can be an iteration of your current product that has something really edgy and new to it, and it's changing the game. So this game-changing idea doesn't have to be disruptive. It just has to change the game. Disruptive for me is Elon Musk, who's just building tunnels and <laughs> he's just doing things we don't even think we need.
0: Well, I do believe that disruption is happening a lot today. I see it. I see it all the time in our clients. I see I'm it all sure. the time in our guests. Like for instance, you change the landscape of what s bs are able to have access to that really puts them on the level playing field of the Goliaths. That's- very disruptive.
1: It is. And you know, the one point you bring out too is, can your customers keep up with that disruption? Are you trying to serve your current customer base with that disruption? Or is it going to require that and provide you the opportunity for net new customers? Well, hopefully
0: <laughs> it provides opportunity for net new customers. That would be
1: gross, right? Absolutely. But there are a lot of companies trying to figure out how do I make sure I don't lose my current customer right. set. So. You do want to look, I agree totally with you, you want that net new, but if you have a 1,000 customers, 10,000 customers, you don't want to lose them all you might want to lose some of them because they're not profitable. So right. absolutely, you do want to think through the customer side of things.
0: For sure. Well, we do have a certain percentage of listeners that are from very large corporations that have cheap innovation officers, and they're looking to see what their younger, more nimble, smaller counterparts are doing. So we've spoken a little bit about AI, but let's get into this AI and machine learning to simplify decision-making. So we have this critical thinking issue a broken juncture between different decision makers or communicators how do you use ai to simplify that
1: it's pulling from internal knowledge automatically so it's pulling data knowledge centers where are my centers of competency for let's say we're trying to make a decision about a new technology or a disruptive idea ai can help me understand the knowledge base and the experience of all my organization do we have the experience in-house to handle that, do we need to put in programs to educate, to fill the gap in that side? The data on customers. I mean, we can use sentiment analysis, conversational you know, information that's going on with the sales reps. Is anything coming to us that we can pick out that has a sentiment or keywords or something that's starting to bring out this sort of topic or idea that we need something in this realm? So you're starting to pull these data sources together and align them so you can see them visually against the, again, justification you're trying to make. And then certainly external forces, can we look at the market competition? Can we pull in data that's going on? What's getting funded? How is it getting funded? Are we thinking that we're, we are get this all the time, no one else is doing this? Well, probably someone's doing something. So what is it that they're doing? And so can we streamline the effort of this information being gathered and get it into a central visual form so that you can better into it, is this the right thing to do? I don't know if that makes sense, but it's definitely data-driven, collecting, prioritizing automatically for us, pinpointing sentiment, pinpointing gaps, and bringing these things in alignment to bear so that we know what's possible.
0: Very interesting. So how does this help with the critical thinking aspect? So once you have this data?
1: Yeah. The critical thinking, which, you know, I think we we talk a lot about some of that is missing and myself included, we read the headlines of everything, but how deep do we go? And so I think in critical thinking, it's really the technology can help us take the deep dive, but it's going to pinpoint those things we need to go deeper in and understand. So let me prioritize the things that are really critical for me to read and detail and where to go research. So I'm not wasting as much time, maybe going to do the looking, but I'm spending more time in that material that's going to be the most important to me in that particular area that we're looking at, if that helps. And by the way, you know this is as strong for entrepreneurial organizations as it is for large companies. When dealing with an innovation It's like a startup inside of a big company, but I've worked with probably 800 or so startups and founders in my time, as well as being a venture-funded startup. So it's helpful in any regard when you can put some of these pieces together to help the organizational critical thinking and align people on all of that information at one time.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to me, aligning all of the people at one time. Where does this help the most? Because it seems to me when you're talking that there's a broken piece (laughs) towards the end of the funnel of getting that information correctly communicated back to the top of the funnel, which is the board and the C-suite. That's what I see.
1: But I don't know. No, I agree. I think it helps. You know, I think I'm going to fill my value more because I'm able to be recognized for having done this work in helping to bring forward a really good justification for that decision, right? The systems aren't going to make the decisions for you. They're just going to help you, again, build the data and the story and the critical information needed to say, is it this one or this one that we need to go to market with? Is it this one that you want to put 250 in, or is it this one you actually want to go ahead and put 300, 3 million in and Let's just go out because the data is so strong. And again, I think it's just so important that you're building out these initial steps through to a beta to say we can see potential risks enough to know that it's not so risky. We're going to lose the money, but we might have to pivot. But we know what that point is. We kind of have a sense of that point.
0: I like that you have it locked and loaded at that point of when you need to pivot or if you need to pivot, because that's a critical point that doesn't get put in processes at all.
1: It's like scenario planning. If you haven't thought through the what if this happens on the not so great side, you won't see it coming if it does happen. And that's a lot of, I think, what this process is about and decision making, the fear of making a wrong decision grips everyone, and then someone wants to point a finger at, why did you make that decision? If we can alleviate that you're not having to point a finger at someone, that everyone collectively got the information, could look at it together, and that decision, again, aligned well, it takes some of the fear out of that. And if you make the wrong decision, at least you knew knew why, and you could kind of sense when it was going to happen.
0: Makes sense. How has this innovation in in critical thinking sped up the process for your clients and companies that you've worked with?
1: So you're breaking through an enormous number of barriers inside the organization, right? The stalls we always hear, you know, I can't get the innovation out the door. Can't get the innovation out the door, and so you're building maybe a little bit in a vacuum, and you don't know you're in that vacuum. So I think the speed in which, and I again, I give an example that. We had, working with this company where we're monetizing data, they had been trying to look at that for three years. And when it came in, we put a process in place, gathered all the data. We really did a whole evaluation, put a process together, gave them three options based on the data, disruptive, iterative, or just let's take a traditional approach, but we'll have some technology built into it. Which one would you like to do? We did that in less than six months, giving them the options, having the monetized strategy together. And in the next year, we were building. And so, I mean, they've been trying for three years to get something out the door. Yeah,
0: wow. Within a year, we're building. There you go. That's awesome. Just so I know, define for me the difference between disruptive and iterative. Iterative? Yeah.
1: Iterative to me is you've got something already maybe even in the market or you've started the process of building a technology could be, again, I'll take conversational chat application. Maybe you had some semblance of some chat application. Well, we're going to iterate by building in maybe more innovative features into that application. And that becomes an iterative process by how we're building out the feature set to become more distinctly different and competitively advantaged.
0: And that versus, you said, a more traditional approach. What would be a more traditional
1: approach? And I'm saying traditional in the sense of if it's a traditional company, for them, it could be the, let's say, in the way that you're delivering something today, can we add, this is maybe not the best example, but if I'm a manufacturer of fabric, I do textiles, can we add a strand of sensing textile so that it's sensing my heart rate that's still iterative it's, it's innovative in some ways it could be disruptive in the potentially the way we do it but I'm starting with this sort of iterative you know from traditional to adding Here. some sense yeah. of a technology into that
0: I get it okay good thank you stuff, though. <laughs> yeah absolutely Teresa, how did you become a challenge junkie? Were you like always like this when you're little? Did you drive your parents nuts? Like, I did drive my
1: parents nuts. And my I grew up with an entrepreneurial father. I have five brothers. I like to tease that I was the football. So, you know, we were always competing. I was a competitive tennis player. I just liked the challenge. My dad was learning to the day he died. He was always hungry. He instilled a very strong moral foundation, as well as you know, growth, and just grow, work till you die. I mean, work to something you love, do something for people. And so I think that the challenge, I just grabbed a hold of it early because I was always fed by, you know, how some people are the people that if you tell me you can't do something, they just stop. And that was just never me. If you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to go figure out how to do it. And I started that maybe because my brothers always teased me.
0: <laughs> you can't, <laughs> you can't, can't do it, do that. That. <laughs> <Sure I> can. <laughs> Well, thanks to your brothers. Yeah. What are your crazy passions outside
1: of work? <laughs> oh, funny. Well, I am a, have a band called the Headless Chickens, and we've been playing for almost a little over 10 years now. But, I'm a musician. When we started, this was a passion of my husband to want to be a musician. And so he put three people in our living room that had never played an instrument in their lifetime and asked me to come sing with them and play guitar. And it was the worst thing in the world. And I just had to walk out. I did. Did I'd like, this is it. You're a bunch of headless chickens. And that was the band name. And every Monday night we'd get in and we'd work on songs and work on them until eventually we all started playing out and now we have seven members in the band and, you know, we play charity events and have a lot of fun. That
0: so is like, super cool. So what kind of music?
1: Yeah, you know, I write. So some of my originals, but I also love Bruce Springsteen. I play a lot of, you know, especially his newer stuff on um, this last some one that he just did this last album, but Patty Griffin, Brandy Carlisle. I mean, we do old Tom Petty stuff. I love blues. So it's a lot of the. Kind of old bluesy style rock stuff.
0: That's awesome. So, the Headless Chickens, did you learn to sing by doing that or did you know how to sing before? Well, no,
1: I grew up playing guitar at the age of seven and I played for my church. I was actually handed a guitar by my aunt who said, We've got to have music in the church that's more fun and bulky. So, at seven years old, she put a guitar in my hand and she had <laughs> a friend of hers teach me three chords. And they literally threw me on the stage that weekend on the altar. And so I started playing and singing and leading the congregation until I graduated high school.
0: Starting at seven.
1: Yeah, seven. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they either saw that you were going to take the challenge or they were really hard. <laughs> yeah. To someone to help out. Well,
1: yeah, who knew? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So you did yeah. this all the way through high school?
1: I did it all the way through high school until I graduated. My dad was very musical. He played trumpet for the, he wasn't in the military, but he paid 15 for the army band and had an incredible voice and just, you know, strong voice. It's one of those when he would start singing in church and get on the wrong line that we all sunk under the pew because you could hear his voice from all over. And so everybody would follow him. (laughs) So, That's awesome. I love it. I would say music and then skiing and I play pickleball and tennis and stuff like that.
0: That's great. So you still do all those things, but like your your crazy passion is the headless.
1: Yeah. Music is still a big part of my life. You know, being athletic is still hiking. I live in the mountains now. And so we go hiking a lot and outdoors and getting the mental downtime has been just, it's really important. I've always tried to keep that up. And, And I talk to young people. There are years that it's just uh, it seems impossible to be able to take down time I'm just here to tell you you build it you know you have to work it it's a work in progress but carve out the time put it on your calendar and just make sure you're getting that time for yourself It's easy to lose it
0: It's really important yeah so Teresa tell people how they get a hold of you how they find you
1: so I you can go to LinkedIn and reach out and link to me Teresa at plaza bridge group t-e-r-e-s-a at plaza bridge group you can reach out to me you can call but it's harder to get me by phone so probably the best thing is to reach out on linkedin and send me a note to say you know can we connect and you can also get to us on the plaza bridge group website and you know put in a form or send in a request to get to me
0: i know linkedin definitely works that's how i met you yeah 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 and you wrote a book particularly for women, but I don't think it just applies to women. It's really how to challenge the status quo and all the principles that you've learned. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So all that I am now that I know it's a life lessons book, you know, growing up trying, working the entrepreneurship at my age group, there weren't a lot of women, weren't a lot of investors, no investors were investing in women And, you know, the whole corporate world, you know, just so many lessons that I learned along the way that I wanted to share. I put them in somewhat in storytelling and a little bit of workbook to help you think through in in the critical way, the ways that I work through things. And maybe it'll help someone, especially young professionals going out there. It is stories that talk about the challenges in corporate America as a woman wanting to achieve greater things, how sometimes it feels like everyone is, the culture might not be as good. How do you make the decisions that this isn't the right thing for me to be doing, which sometimes feel really, really hard, especially on how do you go after funding for something that you really believe in when you're being asked if you can babysit my children, (laughs) You're in an investor competition and you've got five men presenting their ideas. And then, you know, here are these two beautiful women and they're presenting the most incredible idea and it's solid. And the only question that the investors asked them were, can you babysit my kids? Seriously? No, that's a serious story. Okay. How do you (laughs) respond?
0: respond?
1: I wanted to help these women. How do you respond to something like that? I had those challenges. I had, you know, men waving fingers in my face going, you can't do this. You cannot do this. And it's like, how do you get over those things? And sometimes they're purposefully challenging because they need you to have the confidence to stand up to it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's just, you know, how do you discern those? And how do you come back? How do you come back quickly?
0: Well, it sounds like a great book. I know that you have it on Kindle as well. So I'm going to.
1: Yes, I do. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Thank Teresa, you for thank asking you so me. much. Yes. You're welcome. Thank yeah, you. I really like how you put the different parts of critical thinking in certain categories and buckets based on the barriers that companies go through when they're iterating a technology product or disrupting. Use AI to pull in the data and help people with that.
1: Yes, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and I really appreciate you bringing the information that you're bringing to the public. It's such important information and helpful, helpful lessons. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I have a special place in my heart for disruptors being one myself. I know the challenges that we go through. I know the arrows in our backs that we have and there's just a whole new territory of being a frontiersman that if other disruptors can listen, the other disruptors. There's a lot of things that are in common, and there's a lot of new things that they can learn to help overcome.
1: Well, and I will say, there are a lot of people that want to shoot the disruptor. I mean, they want to kill yes. the ideas, and so those are the ones. That's where the challenge junkie comes in. Say thank you very much for the feedback, and go do it because yeah, those it's are totally the ones. A really go good back. idea. Because <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> you guys are making the world a better place.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal health care or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links. Do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.